Welcome to the Show Me and Sue podcast. I'm Zach Lawhorn from Show Me Opportunity, and today I'm joined by David Stokes, Aaron Hedlund, and James Scholes from Show Me Institute. James, earlier this week, we posted a blog at showmeinstitute.org. Um, you did a little investigative reporting around an NEA report, average teacher salary. What, uh, what questions were you asking, and uh, what answers did you get? Well, this is about the starting teacher salaries in Missouri, and what first really piqued my interest is is I saw that the St. Louis Post-Dispatch was posting things that were just factually incorrect, even by the NEA study that they were talking about. So they were leading stories saying Missouri's last in the nation in terms of starting teacher salaries. And in the NEA report, we were 50th, but we were 50 out of 51 because they include D.C. Montana was lower than us. And you might say, well, that's just, you know, you're just quibbling over things here. But I think it's important for, for news organizations to get things accurate. But the additional piece is that the NEA report undercounts or undervalues what our average teacher salaries are, because Missouri has made a policy decision to have a lot of small school districts. We have over 500 school districts. And take that in comparison to, say, like Florida, which has about 2 million more students and has 75 school districts. When you have small rural school districts with lower pay because they're small rural school districts, and you count them the same as you count a large district like a Rockwood or a, or a St. Louis or you know, whichever bigger, higher paying districts, you're going to undercount. I put a little uh, analysis in our in our paper and one of my friends actually pointed out to me that I said you're counting these two districts the same because you're counting them each as one no matter how many teachers they hire. But it could be the case that the Middle Grove School District, which only has, I think, 35 students, might hire zero teachers. And, and Rockwood might hire 50 teachers, and we're still counting those two districts the same in that NEA report. So I kept saying, hey, this number's not right. This number's not right. Just ask Desi for the real number. They should give it to us. And after quite a bit of hounding, I will say they gave it to me. They, they gave me the actual number, which was about $5,000 higher than what they were reporting in terms of the average. So the actual starting teacher salary for People who actually started teaching in 2022 was over 38,000. Now, that $5,000 increase, I mean, 38,000 is what many people are trying to push the starting teacher salary to in Missouri right now. And, and my whole pressure with all of this stuff is that we need to have good information for lawmakers to make decisions. We need to have actual, uh, accurate information. And nobody had this number because no news media that I could tell requested it. Show Me Institute requested it. We've reported it. Uh, and we continue to dig into this issue. Sure. And so a question I have when we're talking about the starting salary for teachers is that that is a profession that is usually on a career uh, salary ladder, right? So if you're going to raise the bottom rung of the ladder, there would be a cost higher up the ladder, right? So when we're having a conversation about the average starting salary, we're really talking about the entire system. Yeah, this this is the, the challenge is that either you're going to have salary compression or you're going to have to raise everyone sort of proportionally. So each year, a teacher typically gets a raise based on experience. You talk about salary ladder or, or it's... They have these things, we call them steps and lanes, where you, you move down with each year of experience, you move over with each additional degree to get raises. And so, yeah, if you, all of a sudden, you you raise the salary of all the people at the beginning, 
either the salary is going to be compressed where you're getting very little raises over time, or you have to increase everyone. The real problem I have with this approach, this, uh, this just mandating from the state that everyone increase their salaries, um, is that there, it either causes very big challenges for rural school districts or low-paying school districts that can't afford those salaries, or it requires the state to put in additional funds in a different pool just to fund those salaries. I think that's a very bad strategy, and I don't think it actually addresses the shortage issue, which I, I touch on in another piece. Our shortages in Missouri are predominantly felt in urban, black, low-income school districts. About half of all the vacancies of teachers are in five districts. Those districts already have a starting salary of over $40,000, right? So raising it up to 38 doesn't affect them at all. It, it makes their competition more attractive, but it's going to hurt them. So what we need is targeted solutions to help those really high need at uh, high poverty districts. And we need what I would say are, are more appropriate solutions to address this issue. If, if you want to increase funding for schools, then let's do it through the formula. Let's adjust the weights in the formula. Let's adjust the thresholds in the formula. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, go to the Show Me Institute website, read my funding formula primer, and you'll know. We could adjust those things and put more money into the system, more money for schools to spend, and we could do it in a way that's fair and equitable through the funding formula, rather than just putting these mandated across-the-board salary increases. And so when you say the formula, I mean, just kind of to summarize that without going too far into the weeds, you're talking about the mix of local funding and state funding and how that all gets combined and then sent to schools and how much comes from property taxes and other local taxes and how much comes from the state, right? Yeah, the, the funding formula is designed to use both state and local dollars. But how much the state is going to give depends on the types of students you have in your district and how many students you have. So if you have students that are high poverty, you're going to get more districts or more money, I mean. But that the student, there's a weight in the formula, and I'm forgetting exactly what it is. But let's say that that student gets counted instead of as one student, they get counted as 1.2 students. What I'm saying is, well, increase that weight to 1.25. Increase it some amount so that the districts get more money. Or there's only a certain number of districts that are getting this funding because there's something called a threshold, lower the threshold. So more districts get that funding. There are ways to tinker with the funding to make sure that the state is providing additional funds. That's one solution. The other solution, that funding formula, when it calculates local dollars, it assumes that local school districts are going to tax themselves at 3.43 per $100 of assessed valuation. We have something like over 100 districts that tax themselves less than that. I think we had 70-something, I have to look back at these numbers, that taxed themselves at the state-required minimum, which is 2.75. And guess what? Those tend to be rural districts that have low starting pay. So if you want to address this issue, you could, you could try to require those local districts to increase that their local effort. And you can increase the state funds by tinkering with the formula. All right. Well, so there's going to be a lot of conversation about that during the session. And so we'll check in and uh, you can read James' work up at showmeinstitute.org. David, another thing that uh, has been in the news lately 
as the session begins is a conversation about child care. And Aaron, you can uh, speak to the the labor part of this. And there's a school part of it with a lot of uh, districts going to four day school weeks. But David, I want to start with you. Can you set the table for what the conversation around child care has been? There seems to be an agreement that the state needs to do more to assist with child care in, in Missouri. But I don't know what the state is supposed to do here because most child care or pri- most child daycare centers are private companies. So I don't know, is, is the state just going to start paying part of the salary for private, for private companies to increase the pay of, of daycare workers? That seems, that seems a, a, the wrong thing to go about doing. So they haven't really fleshed out what they're going to actually try to do to improve child care in, in Missouri. One of the things that has been filed as a bill is to make daycare centers property tax exempt from property taxes. And that's actively a bad idea. That is that is a bad bad idea. These again, most of the the ones that are not for-profit businesses, the ones affiliated with schools or churches or the like, those are already t- tax exempt from from property taxes. If you're part of again a church or a, or a school or a YMCA or something like that. But to to then just say all even for-profit uh, daycare centers, uh, you know, anything that reduces the tax base, I think is a bad idea. But the real problem here is that nursing homes and hospitals, but especially nursing homes, are constantly fighting with local assessors and local collectors over over whether they should be tax exempt, whether whether they should be partially tax exempt, because many nursing homes will just ha- they'll aspire to have the bare minimum number of charitable beds, even though they're largely for-profit institutions. The bare number of charitable beds to then get be declared tax exempt. And the Post Dispatch has written a number of stories on this over the years. For-profit hospitals have the exact same fight that leads to a lot of disputes, and opening this up to thousands of now daycare centers saying, well, if, you're, if it's your primary purpose is a daycare center, even if you're a profitable business, you can now apply for tax exemption. I think that's a, a very bad idea that's going to create a lot of, a lot of confusion, a lot of, a lot of issues within collectors around the state. And I don't think it's going to help kids out anyway. Anytime you do that, whether it's making daycare centers tax exempt or similarly, declare that senior citizens, their homes can no longer be reassessed higher, they're frozen. You're essentially raising taxes on everyone else because it's unlikely that those local governments are actually cut services or spending in a result of those limits of those property tax bases. So you're raising everybody else's taxes, at least indirectly. So I don't know what the state is actually going to propose to do, but I don't really see, I don't really see a good outcome here. And the only one that's they're Hard, hard with so far, this bill to to make daycare centers tax exempt is an actively bad idea. Yeah, and just briefly before I ask Aaron about the, the labor force part of this, um, can you expand a little bit on what you mentioned there with freezing property taxes for seniors? That's an idea that's being talked about, right? Another bad idea. Uh, it w- the idea is that when somebody turns 65 – and various ideas have slight differences over the age or how long you may have lived in, needed to live in your primary residence or whatever it may be. But the one bill introduced that I know of so far, SJR 21 in the Senate, uh, says that once you're 65, you're, the assessed valuation of your home is frozen. So it does not increase with subsequent reassessments, even if you live in that house for another 20 or 30 years. Uh, taxes in theory could go up if people approve tax increases, but for the most part, 
you know, assessments increase and thereby your property taxes increase accordingly. And freezing the property taxes, uh, freezing the property assessments, and by default then, largely the property taxes for seniors is a terrible idea. Uh, I see, first of all, that's going to freeze the tax, that's going to shrink the tax base there. You're going to inevitably have higher taxes on other people. You're going to create a very distorted system where if it's reset somebody, when somebody purchases a home, you could have the exact same home next door to each other in the same city in the same school district and somebody's assessed at 300,000 and somebody's assessed at 600,000 just because somebody bought the house recently and somebody else has been living there for 20 years. So that's a patently unfair and has, we've seen in California with their Prop 13, which has been in existence now for about 45 years, many of the negative impacts that has had. I certainly don't doubt the intentions of the people supporting this, wanting for seniors to be able to stay in their homes longer. That's certainly a good thing. And I don't, uh, I commend them for what they want to do, but there's a lot of unintended consequences here of a very bad nature. So Aaron, going back to the uh, childcare policy, every month when the jobs report comes out, one of the things that you note is the labor participation rate. Um, and it's been staying static, if not going down. We're hovering around 62%, I believe. You can correct me if I'm wrong. But one of the reasons people cite for staying out of the workforce is childcare, not being able to find it, not being able to afford it. Um, in your opinion, is that something that is keeping the, in Missouri, keeping the labor force participation rate down and something that needs to be addressed through government intervention? Well, so you're absolutely right that labor force participation is down compared to where it was pre-pandemic. Uh, we're down about a percent and a half still, and there's there's no evidence that we're recovering. Uh, certainly for some parents, child care issues can be something that is an impediment to labor force participation. That doesn't explain the drop since COVID, uh, especially now. I mean, there was a period of time where child care went through a bit of a disruption during COVID, but we're you know, considerably away from those uh, lockdowns and, and all that. And, and nevertheless, labor force participation still isn't coming back. So that is kind of a longer term issue to look at. But one thing I would caution against in terms of a policy approach is the the tried and the tried trick of more government subsidies. If all we do is the government doing more and more to stoke demand, what we have found in many other instances, whether it's higher education or housing or childcare, is that it basically pushes up prices and doesn't actually get a whole lot more people into the market. So what we really should be looking at are what are the barriers on the supply side to getting more childcare centers, more people who can, and not just official centers, it could be people who are supplying childcare more informally, uh, just reducing barriers to that would be the first place I would take a look. Sure. And I think we've talked about it before on the the podcast, David, I know you've talked about, it. there is a, a, a math equation that people do, right? If they're looking at the cost of childcare against going back into the workforce, people do add up the the numbers and see if it's going to be worth it to take the job or stay home with the kids, right? Absolutely. And there's actually a term for it, which is escaping me right now. It'll probably it'll probably come to me the moment I, I stop. Nanny I stop. arbitrage. It's nanny arbitrage. Yeah. That's right. Thank you, Zach. Nanny arbitrage. It's the figuring the cost of, of what you... That's one of the reasons why, for lack of a better term, illegal immigrant nannies are very popular is because you don't pay taxes on that on that immigrant nanny and that thereby lowers your the cost of having a nanny in the first place uh we had a nanny when we, our kids were smaller and we paid taxes on them 
But right, you do that math. Like, it costs me this. And then on the back end, if you've got in-house, it's less of an issue if you're sending your kid to daycare. But for if you've got in-house work, you then have to pay the unemployment taxes, the Social Security taxes, the Medicare taxes. So you're adding taxes on the back end versus going back to work and what taxes do you then get taken out of your, your own paycheck. So it actually, you need to be making a fairly significant amount more to make it worthwhile or else many people may choose to just stay out of the, out of the workforce, which in the short term when your children are really small might not, might not be a terrible thing. But over time, it, it definitely reduces your ability to go back into the workforce and, and uh, make as much money as you otherwise would have. All right. Um, and then finally, Aaron, you've got a new paper out. It's on modernizing Missouri's unemployment insurance. Um, and so it's a it's a big problem. It's a weedy problem. But um, I think the first question to ask is uh, in your paper, you've kind of got your ideal setup of some of the ideal changes that you would make. So let's just kind of go through those one by one. And if you can kind of state the problem and then let's start going through your ideal setup for Missouri's unemployment system. Yeah, and it's important to mention that in the paper, there's a discussion of what the ideal is, and then there's also a discussion of practical steps we should take now. And so I'd actually focus even more attention on that. But this really goes to a, this is a longstanding issue that COVID really emphasized. So in particular, again, we have labor force participation still below 2019 levels. And part of that problem, a significant part of that problem, is that during COVID, unemployment insurance became more generous. In fact, more generous than a job. You actually got penalized if you went back to work in terms of lower pay. And the thing is, even though that enhancement, as they called it, is now done, the long-term consequences are still there because you have people now who haven't been working for a year or two, which makes it harder for them to get reemployed. And there's also a huge amount of government money out there that people have been spending, which has been contributing to the 40-year high inflation. So the question is, how can we, what, what, why is unemployment insurance causing this? Well, partly is it's that it was paying people more not to work. But again, there's longstanding problems. So for example, the tax base for the unemployment insurance tax is very narrow. So what that means is that a, a small percentage of wages are in the tax base, which means the tax rate has to be higher. That acts as a strong penalty to employers for hiring workers. So if we want employers to hire more people, it'd be much better to have a broader base and a lower rate instead of a steep rate and a narrow base. Also, uh, something called partial unemployment insurance benefits, where suppose you lose your job, but you manage to find something part-time in, in, in between your job search. Well, what you'd ideally like to have is that you lose some of your benefits, but not all of them as you gradually make more money, because if otherwise you get this essentially a cliff where you have no incentive to take a job until you find the very right job. So people take longer to find things. Um, and then you also have just plain old unemployment insurance fraud. The, the most common form of fraud is where people are on benefits and then they get a job, but they don't report right away that they've got the new job. So they're collecting benefits while working. So we can improve reporting capabilities. So there's a number of things we can do. I mean, ideal system, it'd be great to have unemployment insurance accounts for people, uh, instead of directly going to the taxpayer, they'll actually have an account they own that would build up money over time from their paycheck so that when they lose their job, they first draw down that. And then only if that hits zero, do they start getting taxpayer money. And the advantage there is if you own the account and you get to keep the money at retirement that's left over, then you have an incentive to search faster than you would otherwise. 
But all these things need some modernization of our basic IT and accounting systems before we can even do the, the actual substantive policy changes. And a sticky part of the inflation that we've been experiencing is wages, right? And it's not only harder to fill open positions, but it makes it more expensive to fill positions if there's enhanced unemployment benefits, correct? And so that drives wages up, that drives wage inflation up, that drives overall inflation up, and that's not helping anyone in the long term, right? Absolutely. A lot of the focus when it comes to unemployment insurance is on how it affects people's job search behavior. And that's important, of course. But unemployment insurance also very much affects job vacancy posting and filling behavior among companies. So if companies feel like they have to compete with the government, which has, compared to a typical company, essentially unlimited resources from taxpayers, it's very hard for companies to compete with that. So what you see is they can't, companies either have to wait, raise their wage or post fewer vacancies. And uh, and again, it becomes harder to fill those things. So we, we have seen now an ongoing labor shortage for a couple of years now, and we need to really tackle this before those workers never come back off the sidelines. And Elias mentions, Elias Chappellis mentions all the time when he's talking about Medicaid reform, that modernizing the system, just the computers being able to talk to each other is a huge part of the issue. And I'm reminded of last week, I think it was Southwest Airlines had to cancel, uh, you know, uh, thousands of flights because their system is antiquated. And it just was never the right time for a CEO to kind of take that hit and say, this quarter we're spending X millions of dollars to update the system. But then a crisis hits. Is that one of the issues that there's just no one in state leadership that says now is the time to spend this political capital to uh, spend however many millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars you would need to update these systems? Yeah, so far, no one's taken the reins of leadership on that. And I can assure you, it would definitely not be billions of dollars or hundreds of millions of dollars. I would argue it would be a I'm not going to do the cost estimate right now, but the return on investment would be very high because we're talking about fixing computer systems so that you get more Missourians back to work. And the tax revenue that those Missourians generate would over time dwarf whatever investment it is. And the thing is, the computer systems are embarrassingly antiquated. And part of it is just communication in the systems. But some of it is, during COVID, there was a understandable desire to make benefits more generous than typical when people couldn't work at all, when everything was kind of locked down. But it was impossible to go into the computer system and just change the percentage of your wage that's replaced, which is typically about 50%, to change that from, say, 50 to 70. There was no way in the computer system to change a single number. So instead, the federal government gave everybody $600 extra per week. And there's, in fact, an entire, essentially, interest group agency that represents state unemployment offices that lobbied the government to do the $600 approach instead of pushing for modernization. So this is something that Missouri can take a lead on, and it's it's kind of low-hanging fruit if someone can, can take leadership on it. Just for the record, I've done the math on how much it will cost to improve the uh, unemployment insurance program, and the entire cost of the state of Missouri is $27. $27. D- $27. That's all. Can you I put think the, we, I think we can do this. And we'll put that in a spreadsheet, a downloadable spreadsheet at showmeinstitute.org for anyone who wants to, to download David's work there. Um, okay, so yeah, at uh, showmeinstitute.org under publications, you can see Aaron's paper there, Modernizing Missouri's Unemployment Insurance System. Um, all right, to wrap up, we will find out what everyone's keeping track of over the next week. Any uh, stories you're watching or bills you're watching? David, I'm going to start with you. Tarum Ripum Vicia. 
Land banks must be defeated. This is this is my again. I'm ending every radio interview, speaking engagement, podcast, and so on with Terum Ripum Vicia. Land banks must be defeated. Like Cato the Elder saying Carthago delecto est, Carthage must be destroyed in every speech before the Roman Senate for years. Uh, that's my thing. Uh, there's a bill to pass. Bring Three aldermen just went to jail for land briberies, much of it, some of it related to land banks in St. Louis. So why would we not expand land banks to the rest of Missouri? What a perfect time to do it. Uh, terrible idea. Terrible bill. The state of Missouri does. The re, other cities and counties in Missouri do not need land banks. Land banks must be defeated. James. And I want it in Greek or Latin, James, whatever, whatever you say. <laughs> Uh, I don't know any Greek or Latin. What, what's Vinny Vidi Vici or whatever that is? Uh, it means I came, I saw, I conquered. There we go. That's it. Uh, so I think next week there's going to be a hearing on a parent's bill of rights bill before the legislature. So that's something we'll be keeping our eyes upon. I know Patrick Ishmael has really been talking about parent's bill of rights. Uh, I'm going to keep looking into this teacher salary and teacher shortage information. I have a, an op-ed that should be coming out soon explaining how the shortage is really pronounced in those high poverty school districts. And so hopefully we'll get that in a paper soon and readers can uh, follow up with that. Aaron? In addition to the topics we've already been discussing, I think Missouri can still do a lot in terms of improving the competitiveness of its tax code. So I'll be looking for work both on the corporate side and the household side. Um, of course, we we always want to be looking not just at the total revenue that's coming in, but also the structure of that revenue that's coming in. And the income tax is an abundance of evidence that that is the, the most anti-growth form of tax. So to the extent that we can reduce those rates and be competitive with states like Iowa that have already been cutting rates pretty aggressively, and Arkansas, which is certainly talking a big game, the better that will put Missouri. And I, and I want this podcast to end with a clip from the scene in Life of Brian where the 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 zealot is trying trying to graffiti Romans go home on the temple wall and the Roman soldier catches him and the grammar is wrong so he forces him to conjugate the language with a sword to his throat and then when he finally gets it right forces him to paint it a hundred times all over the city as his punishment. I don't think we need to include it. I think you just summarized it's it. It's even perfectly. funnier in the actual film, Life of Brian. All right. Well, James, Aaron, and David, thank you very much. And thank you all for listening. Plenty more at showmeinstitute.org. Click on the events tab to see what we have coming up. And next week, I think, is the state of the state. So we'll have more to say on that, hanging on every word of that next week. So thanks, and uh, we'll talk to you then. 